Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. A lot of times when we focus in on only one part of any picture, we don't really get the whole story, everything the picture is is telling us. Take this picture, for example. What do you think this is? You, you might not be able to tell, but that is a picture of a stuffed animal with three hands around it. What could we guess about this picture? Maybe uh, it tells a story about that stuffed animal. Or maybe because there's three hands, it might tell a story about my kids fighting over a stuffed animal. But when we pull back a little bit and we see more of the picture, we know more of the story. Okay, we pull back and oh, now we can see that the focus really isn't on this stuffed animal, but we can't tell yet what's going on. Caitlin, my youngest, is looking off to her left and there's a giant mouth open in the background. Maybe they're still fighting over the stuffed animal and maybe that kid with his mouth open is crying. Let's zoom out a little bit more. One more. Oh, turns out they're not fighting after all. It kind of like looks like Christian is there, my oldest son, he's laughing. And uh, there's a picture of my kids with their great-grandparents. Okay, the story's coming together, but it still needs a little explanation. Caitlin is looking to the left, and Grandma is looking also to the left. And Christian is either laughing or crying real hard. If we zoom out one more time, I think it will explain the story. My wife, Carrie, is trying to get all my kids to sit still and take one picture with their great-grandparents. Maybe their last picture with their great-grandparents. Christian is laughing because Josh won't stay put and Carrie is getting more and more frustrated. And where's dad in all this? I'm behind the camera laughing with my oldest son. We're going to be looking at a vision described by John in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 today. And he is going to use symbols and pictures and images to describe the throne room of God. And some of the pictures we think we understand, and some of the pictures we have questions about and can make educated guesses, but if we get too bogged down in trying to figure out one or two of the images or symbols John gives us, we might miss the whole point he's trying to make, the entire picture he is making in chapters 4 and 5. If you remember in chapter 1, Jesus reveals the identity of his followers as a kingdom and as priests. And Jesus also reveals his identity as God. He is the God we worship. Chapter 1 says who we are and who we worship. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus expands on the identity of who we are, and he encourages the church to be faithful until the end and to repent if we have compromised our faith. Likewise, Jesus expands the explanation of who he is as God in chapters 4 and 5. He gives us an identity about who we worship. And John gives us this vision of heaven that leads us into knowing more about who we are and who we worship. We start to get the whole picture if we look at it that way. And we can't help but realize we need to start worshiping God more fully when we come to that understanding. In Revelation 4 and 5, God is calling us to join with all creation in worshiping Jesus as God because of four reminders. John gives us four reminders about why we praise Jesus The reminders are that Jesus is creator and sustainer, redeemer and maker. Creator, sustainer, redeemer and maker. 
The first two reminders we find about who we worship, our creator and sustainer. Our God is the creator and sustainer of all the universe. When we enter into chapter 4, Jesus has just finished giving the seven churches of Asia Minor instructions to hold fast to their faith. Now we enter chapter 4, verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Oh, this gets really exciting straight away. Jesus is going to reveal what God's plans are for his kingdom and the history of the world that will be. But before we get to chapter 6 and beyond that explains what Jesus is going to lay out for all mankind, John takes two chapters to help us understand again this really important point we don't want to miss, this picture we don't want to miss, who we worship. This is also where things are going to get tricky for us. We already know about using symbols in our own language. Sometimes we say what we mean without meaning what we say. I know some of you are looking at me like, what did he just say? I'll say it again. Sometimes we say what we mean without meaning what we say. We use symbols already in our everyday language. Here's an example of what I mean. When I say, um, I say what I mean without meaning what I say, I'll meet you at 1300 hours. Now most people realize I mean we're going to meet at 1 o'clock, but that's not what I said. The words I used did not mean what I said. We're not counting or making an addition statement to get to 1300 hours. We're using the number as a symbol to represent 1 o'clock. Or if I were to say, you're driving me crazy, most people would recognize that what I mean is, you are annoying me. Not that you've put me in a car and drove me to a town called Crazy. There is a town in, in Arizona named Y, and there is a Bug Tussle, Kentucky, and a city in Maine named Burnt Porcupine. But I can't find any place in the United States with a town called Crazy. But you get it, right? We use metaphors and symbols to say what we mean all the time, but not mean what we say. And that's how it is in John's letter to the seven churches and to us. When we say he is writing in an apocalyptic style, we're saying he is using symbols, a lot of symbols, to explain what he means. Every number, color, piece of clothing, lack of clothing, clean or soiled clothing, geography, weather pattern, everything is a symbol in Revelation. And John uses those symbols and he calls us to interpret those symbols with wisdom. We're not used to this style of writing, but we do know about metaphors and symbols. And right off the bat, we get a symbol of God's sovereignty, His authority, His rule, because John describes a throne room of God. Now, we can use wisdom in reading this because we know that God is spirit, John chapter 4, verse 24. So He doesn't have a body or sit on a throne. And we know from Paul's letter to Timothy that God is the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. And in Colossians chapter 1, we read that God is invisible. But Jesus has John write down a vision of a throne room of God with one seated on a throne. And we need wisdom to see the reality that John is giving us. The reality 
is God rules over all creation, over the whole universe, and the glory of God brings with it the lights and the gems and the creatures that are mentioned, and it's calling us to worship Him for His sovereignty and authority. But there are more images we have to understand too. In this passage, John is going to see 24 thrones with 24 elders and four living strange creatures around the throne of God. But let's take a look and see what John saw. Verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, were, in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will, they were created and have their being. That was Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. What, what do we do with those four living creatures? And who are those 24 elders? I think it's really fun to make educated guesses on the 24 elders and the four living creatures. For example, in Isaiah 24, 23, uh, the prophet describes the God, our God, ruling in the new heaven and new earth, surrounded by his elders. And we read later in Revelation 21 that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the 12 gates of the foundation of the new city of heaven uh, with the, the names of the 12 apostles. And the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, and we can move forward with the idea that the 24 elders represent the whole complete church. Every person who is in Christ, robed in righteous, righteousness, worshiping God. And the four creatures are similar to the creatures described in Ezekiel chapter 1, representing all kingdoms and creation. Uh, wait, did we just get bogged down into a tiny part of the picture? Did you? Isn't it fascinating to try to put the puzzle together? If you want to pursue the meaning behind the symbols found in Revelation, just make sure you use the context of who John was writing to, the original hearers and readers of this letter, and then look for the symbol and how it's used in Revelation itself, and then turn to the Old Testament 
Out of 404 verses of Revelation, there are over 520 allusions to the Old Testament. And I think pursuing those pictures and how they're used in Revelation and the Old Testament and other apocalyptic literature has value. But don't get so focused on one small part of the picture that you miss John's point. John is trying to let us know that all people and all creatures are worshiping God because He is the Creator and Sustainer of all creation. Listen to their song in verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God created all things, and by His will they have their being. God is worthy to be worshipped. There's none like Him. Isaiah, in chapter 40 of, of his prophecy, invites us to compare God with other beings and other parts of creation to determine how much greater God is than any other thing we can see or any other person we can worship. I think this is a good practice for us to remind ourselves that there is none like our Creator, none like our Sustainer, our God, Yahweh. Isaiah 40, in verses 12 through 14, tells us that God is totally set apart from any other being. That, that, that's what holy means, set apart and unique. Listen to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? And who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the Spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as counselor? Verse 13, I mean verse 14. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? There's none like our God. He's the only one who can do these things. Can you imagine holding all of the waters in one hand? And then verses 15 through 24 describes how our God is all-powerful too. There's no ruler or prince or king or Caesar. That's what John's people needed to hear. Or president, maybe that's what we need to hear, that is as powerful as our God. Verse 21, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner than they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. There's no one equal to our God, no person. And then verses 25 and 26, invite us to, uh, invite us to compare our God as the creator of all things greater than everything created. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. 
And in verse 27 through 31, this is again from the prophet Isaiah. I think in Revelation, when, when John is calling us to remember he's the creator and sustainer, I think he's alluding to this chapter in Isaiah. In 27 through 31, God reveals that he gives us the strength to go on, the encouragement we need to remain faithful. Some of you have probably heard these verses before. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even the young grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Don't we all get tired sometimes? Don't we all get tempted sometimes? And it would be easier to just give up trying to be faithful. And it would be just easier to go along with the crowd or to give in to temptation. It would be easier to answer your email or Facebook post with anger and hatred instead of fighting to forgive or giving back love and grace. But God promises that He can give us the strength to keep going. And if we can wait patiently and seek out our God, be willing to suffer, patiently waiting for something better to come along, our ruler will lift us up like on wings of eagles, and he will give us the strength to run and not grow weary, to walk and not grow faint. John wants us to see that all creatures in heaven worship God as creator and sustainer. He can sustain you too. He can give you the strength to keep going. And every time you feel weak, go back and start comparing him to things that we think are powerful or great. Compare him to the stars, like Isaiah said, or compare him to other leaders that you might uh, be mad at or be uh, worried for. Compare him to um, anything that you think is mighty or great, anything that you think a lot about, and you'll find that he is greater. And in that worship time that you have, when you realize and come to the understanding that he is greater, he'll give you the strength to continue to go on. That's what John's readers needed to hear, and that's why Revelation is so valuable to us today. It's what we need to hear. Keep on going. He will sustain you. That's why he's worthy for worship. John also wants us to see that Jesus is God, and he is worthy to be worshiped because he's the Redeemer and Maker. In chapter 4, he describes him as the Creator and Sustainer. But in chapter 5, it's Redeemer and Maker that John wants us to see. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Ha, there's that foreshadowing again of God's will and destiny for his kingdom people, ready to be open, read, and acted upon. A, a scroll was 
uh, is a symbol for the decrees and will of the king. And we find God's will in this scripture. And only Jesus allows us to understand the point of his will for us. And here in chapter 5, it's only Jesus that can reveal God's will for the future of humanity, the decree of God in that scroll. But before we get to that proclamation and action of what's going to take place, John takes us back to worship. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Did you catch the Lamb? John wanted to turn around and see who could open the throne, the Lion of Judah, and he turns around and it's the Lamb. And it's Jesus who John is telling us to interpret. And and he's worthy to open the scroll, and he's worthy to be worshipped. Why? Look at verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. That's Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Jesus is worthy because he was killed, slain, slaughtered on the cross, and his blood purchased us out of sin slavery, out of the kingdom of darkness. The biblical word for that is redeemed. Jesus is worthy because his blood sacrifice, his life, was paid as a ransom to redeem his people, the church. When Jesus bought us, he didn't just take us out of slavery, and he didn't just move us out of the kingdom of darkness. His sacrifice brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and put us in the kingdom of light. He made us a part of his kingdom. He adopted us into his family. He justified us and declared us not guilty. He forgave our sins. He set us free, and he reconciled us to God. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped because he is our Redeemer. But He's also our Maker. 
We need to remember he's our redeemer and our maker. Look again at verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Four times, John uses the phrase kingdom and priest. He links them together four times in Revelation, serving our God as his priest. In chapter 1 of Revelation, when Jesus reveals our identity, he says we are part of his kingdom now, and so we will serve as priests. So when we are on the earth, we are part of his kingdom. The kingdom of God has already started. That's one of the reasons why Christians experience conflict Conflict is whenever you have two people or two ideologies or two religions trying to occupy the same space. That's why John's people uh, that he wrote to were having conflict. The Christians were trying to occupy the same place as the Jews in their synagogues. Uh, They were trying to teach Jesus is Lord, the Messiah. On earth, we have the kingdom of God taking hold, and we are given the task of proclaiming and living as Christ followers in a world that wants all the land and all the people for its broken self. This is conflict. In John's day, the people had to worship and declare allegiance to the kingdom of Caesar. And here were all the Christians saying they only declared allegiance to Christ, Christ who was their king, and only declared allegiance to the kingdom of God. John reminds us that we are a kingdom of priests while we're on earth. And if we die, he goes on to remind us that we'll be in the presence of God in his kingdom, acting as priests and continuing to serve him. And in the new earth and new heaven in chapters 21 and 22, when we reign with God forever, sitting on his throne, enjoying his company, we will still be in his kingdom and still serve as priests. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus reveals the throne room of God to us and shows us why he is worthy of worship? And allows us to hear the wondrous songs and then discover that Jesus includes us in that scene as his priests, part of his kingdom. Can you imagine seeing yourself on one of those thrones? You're dressed in white because God has declared you clean and pure and holy, made like Christ. And you've been given a crown because you reign with Jesus and he allows you to reign with with him on his throne Can you imagine throwing your crown down at his feet with reckless joy, shouting and singing and giving him praise? When we understand and embrace what John is trying to teach us, that we can join in worship with all of heaven because of who Jesus is, our creator and sustainer and redeemer and maker, that's when the whole picture comes together and makes sense. Are you included in this scene? Are you going to be included in the worship of heaven? Have you given your life to Christ? Because what's going on and what's going to happen in the future heavenly scene is dependent on how you respond to the call of Christ to worship him now. Have you committed your life to Christ totally and completely? Have you compared him to all other things and found that all other things are not worthy, but he is worthy. Because if you haven't, it determines your future heavenly scene and whether you get to join in worship of the Lamb. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ, would you make your decision public? 
Would you type it into the chat room? Would you email the church? Would you call somebody and tell them that you want to follow Christ? We would like to help you take your next best step. Maybe it's by doing a public confession on a video that we put on Facebook and we put on our webpage and we let everyone know that you have declared you are going to be joining with King with Jesus in his kingdom. Maybe it's the step of baptism. Maybe you've never committed your life to Christ as the scripture says you should. To be buried with Jesus into his death and raised by faith into his new life. Maybe you just need to repent. You have been living your life for yourself, not worshiping the Lamb. You've compromised your faith. You're like those seven churches that Jesus is writing to that says that he tells them, stay strong, don't compromise your faith, and maybe you have. Maybe your next best step is just to repent, to ask God for forgiveness, and then change your mind and your actions to give him glory and worship. Would you make that public as well? Let us know. Fill out a connection card by texting CONNECT to 937-382-0904 or email the church and say, I want to make a change in my life. Help me with my next step. We want to help you be in that throne room with God, worshiping and praising Him. And we want to help you take that step to be in His kingdom right now, serving as one of His priests. Our next step of worship, when we declare who Jesus is, is found in communion. Go on and get your bread out, and go on and get your cup out, and be ready to worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who is our creator and sustainer and redeemer and maker. Go on and get that communion out to worship Him. You know, one of the things I have found as I study Revelation, one of the things that I'm rediscovering is that What is going on in the spiritual world is making a huge difference in our physical world. And we're going to see that later as we move into Revelation. And we see in chapter 6 and beyond that there are things behind the scenes that we can't see that are happening in the spiritual world that make a difference. And then another point that we find in Revelation is the things that we do here on earth, the things that we are physically engaged in, make a difference in the spiritual world as well. And so when we take this bread and we take this cup, it is more than just the physical bread and the physical cup that we are drinking. There is something spiritual going on where Jesus is connecting with his followers, maybe in a more intimate way than ever before. Jesus, when he took the bread, he held it up to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, and remember the sacrifice I made for you. Go on and take that bread and break it. And remember the words of Jesus who said, you will eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. There's a spiritual connection going on. Praise him in this time of communion by eating the bread and remembering the sacrifice He made for you on the cross. And Jesus, after supper, took the cup. And he said, this is a cup of the new covenant blood poured out for you. Take and remember. Would you go on and drink of the cup? And remember that his blood was shed for your sins.
Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us through Christ. And you have revealed your love to us through Christ on the cross. And you have revealed your purpose for us by raising Jesus from the dead. We praise you and thank you for this time of communion where we participate in the body and blood of Christ, remembering his sacrifice, that he loves us, loves us enough to die for us, loves us to forgive us, and then, Lord, rises from the dead to proclaim that he is worthy to be worshipped, to proclaim that he has defeated Satan and sin and even death. And, Lord, we remember as we take communion that he is going to come back. We look forward to that day, God. Thank you for this experience of worship in our communion today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.